Hi, and welcome to my show, the Danielle Noonan Podcast, where I interview tech founders and innovators to learn the inspiring human stories behind the game-changing tech we use every day. I am over the moon to kick off series three with the incredible Alvy Ray Smith, co-founder of Pixar. Dr. Alvy Ray Smith is a computer scientist and pioneer in the field of computer graphics. After starting his career in academia, Alvy had an epiphany following a serious skiing accident. He decided to move to California to combine his two passions, art and computers, in a place where he felt something good was about to happen. Alvy was always a pioneer. From creating his first computer graphic in 1965, Alvy became an original member of the Computer Graphics Lab at the New York Institute of Technology. He witnessed the birth of the personal computer at Xerox Park, and he was the first director of computer graphics at George Lucas's Lucasfilm. It was there that Alvy gathered some of the smartest people he knew to develop computer graphics software, including early renderer technology. He and colleague Ed Catmull then spun out to co-found the famous Pixar, soon followed by the hiring of Lucasfilm colleague John Lasseter and Steve Jobs as an investor. It was at Pixar that Toy Story would be made, the very first entirely computer animated feature film. And in 2006, Pixar was sold to Disney for $7.4 billion. Alvy also co-founded Altamira Software and has created a number of computer art pieces, including the famous Sunstone with Ed Emshwiller, which featured in the Museum of Modern Art in New York. Alvy was also the first graphics fellow at Microsoft. In this interview, Alvy recounts his career from the early days at Xerox Park to how Pixar got started. We discuss the Pixar journey in detail, as well as his new book, a biography of the Pixel, including how innovation is born from three strands, an idea, chaos and a tyrant and how steve jobs was both the savior and the tyrant in the incredible pixar story alvi has combined his two passions art and computer science to spend his career showing the world what computers and moreover what computer graphics can do with his huge smile warmth and flowing white hair alvi almost looks like a disney character but he is much more than that a true pioneer this is one of my favorite conversations i hope you enjoy it too Thank you so much for joining me today. All my interviews, I love to kind of go back as far as I can. So my first question to you is, what were your influences growing up? Well, one of the earliest uh, influences on me was my uncle, George Gray, Uncle George. This is in New Mexico where I grew up. Uncle George was an artist. Now, that's uh, that may not be unusual in London, but that's very unusual in small town New Mexico. So... He, he used oil paints, and then he changed to acrylics later, and I was fascinated by, by his art. So he would let me into his studio as a kid, you know, nine years old or so, uh, so long as I didn't say a thing. I mm-hmm. sat on the floor and kept mum, and I just watched him. I learned how to stretch canvas, and I learned to love the smell of linseed oil and turpentine how you lay out the painting and mix colors and take care of the brushes and clean them, everything. And um, so that got me started making pictures really early. That was a high influence. And I'd say another, which I think is unusual to most people, is I grew up with rockets going off. I grew up in first few years of my life were in Las Cruces, New Mexico, which was very near White Sands Missile Range where rockets were tested. After World War II, Werner von Braun brought brought his V-2 rockets over to White Sands Missile Range to teach American rocketeers how they worked. So I don't think most people grew up with rockets going off. (laughs) I did. And I also heard the first A-bomb go off. So the the high technology was in the air and art was in the air. And I, I can see that to me, that's exactly who I am, both of those branches. See, that's really interesting because a lot of people assume that they're quite different in the sense that you're either one or the other. And to have those influences early on obviously did lead you down the path that you took. What What were your parents doing? What was your kind of heritage? My parents were from New Mexico. Dad made cattle feed. He manufactured cattle feed for 
livestock, sheep and cows. That's what he did when I was a, a child. And then later, both he and mom became high school teachers. So I grew up in it. There was one period in my life where all five of us, mom, dad, and my two sisters, and myself, were all teachers of some form in some form or fashion. So education was highly valued in my home. What led you to computer science? I fell in love with the machines, I think, like so many people do. Mm. I was uh, attending school at New Mexico State University in Las Cruces, New Mexico, the town near White Sands Missile Range. And um, a scientist came over from the Missile Range to teach us how to program, that's a new word, Mm -hmm. these machines called computers. And I instantly was good at it and fell in love with it and have been that way ever since. You went on to um, complete a computer science PhD from Stanford. Can you tell me what drew you to that? First of all, I went to Stanford to learn artificial intelligence, believe it or not. I had stumbled on a paper in the library stacks in, in Las Cruces by Marvin Minsky, who was one of the early fathers of AI. And I was fascinated by the idea that computers might be a model for how we think. So in order to stay out of Vietnam, which was raging at the time, I, I managed to get into graduate school at one of the universities in the world that taught AI, Stanford. After a couple of years, I decided, I don't think this is going to happen in my lifetime, which I am a, a conclusion I'm revisiting these days, I might add. <laughs> but I, I changed to something that I could actually do. And what I changed to was cellular automata, cellular automata theory. It's a, it's a mathematics of computer science, you know, theorem proof, definition theorem proof type thesis. Uh, and I proved the existence of self-reproducing machines in this constrained mathematical space. So I was interested always in how living things worked, either their minds or their bodies. In this case, it was bodies. Okay. One of the themes I want to talk about today is not only your background and your career and your life journey, but obviously we've one thing that we must talk about is your book. Uh, the Biography of a Pixel is just yeah. one of the most interesting books I've read in a long time. It's de- It goes greatly into the pixel, the history of the pixel, but it, also your life. And one of the most fascinating things for me is I'm, as I'm sure you're aware, really interested in people's backgrounds, like how things came to be. And when you talk about certain aspects and theories, you will always talk about the person behind it. And you will also give credit to the other people that might have been involved, which is one of the major things for me in the book that I absolutely loved. So throughout this interview, I hope you don't mind, but we're going to be talking about some of the quotes from there. And the first one I wanted, we just touched on maths there. And one of the first quotes that I um, thought was good was, in math, something is proved or it's not, or it's provably unprovable. Mathematicians must deal with all possible patterns, not just the patterns we actually find in the real world. And I love that quote. And I think that patterns are such an important part of this book. From patterns to waves, you talk about the world as waves. And you say that there are three ideas, waves, computations, and pixels that underlie all the apparent complexity of digital light, which is how you describe the world. Can you tell me more about that, how you came to that conclusion, and also what you learned from each of the people who made them possible? Well, just to start with, the, these ideas are simple to understand that the details are, are nasty and I don't burden my readers with the details, but I do want the intuition to come across because the intuitions are kind of nice. For example, Joseph Fourier, way back at about the time of the French Revolution, came up with this notion that the, the way I put it is that the world is all music. In other words, you to get any, I think everybody understands that music is the simultaneous playing of notes of different frequencies and different amplitudes. And, but Fourier went further. He said, well, all sound is just a sum of different, of waves of different frequencies and different, different amplitudes. And then he went further and said, basically, so are all pictures. And that's the basis of my book is to get people used to the notion that if you add up these very smooth rhythmic waves, 
unintuitively, you can get a picture of your child or of a movie. It doesn't, it just mathematically, it's a surprise, but Fourier showed that it was true. And we use his ideas in science and technology every day, but they're usually disguised with all kinds of real hairy looking math. I'm trying to strip away that math and just say, look, it's what he said is it's just, a, it's just music. And once you get that idea, then we can go on to the pixel and then computation. So one of the things I do when I talk to uh, audiences is have people raise their hands if, if they recognize the name Fourier. Well, I, I know in advance that everybody in the sciences and the technologies is going to raise their hands. They, we use Fourier every day. But hardly ever does an artist or somebody in the humanities raise their hand. I did have one artist raise her hand. And I said, oh, uh, I'm surprised that you know about Fourier. She said, well, I was married to a Nobel laureate in physics. Oh, oh okay. <laughs> <laughs> but at the same time, the people who use his theory don't know about him, that he almost got his head cut off in the French Revolution. He was saved because Robespierre lost his head instead. Then Fourier went off with Napoleon Bonaparte to Egypt, was with the group that discovered the Rosetta Stone and so forth. Story is just really fascinating. And so I tell that story. And by the way, I didn't know the story either. I grew up with Fourier theory as part of my everyday working tool kit, but I didn't know about Fourier himself. I was kind of surprised. For example, he invented the greenhouse effect. That one really shocked me hundreds of years ago. And he also supported one of the early great women mathematicians, Sophie Germain, when it was thought that women just did not do mathematics. He supported her. So that's basically, he said, you can substitute any smooth phenomenon in the world with a sum of rhythmic waves. So a, one continuous representation represents another continuous representation. But along came a sampling theorem. The sampling theorem says, and this is one of those total surprises, is that apparently you can just take a sample of a continuous audio signal, for example, like the one you and I are creating right now. You can just take a sample every so often, but regularly spaced sample, and preserve the sample and just throw away everything that we're saying between the samples, and you don't lose anything. What? You can throw away an infinity of information between samples and not lose anything. That's what the sampling theorem basically says, if you do it the right way. And doing it the right way depends on Fourier's result, which I won't go into right now. So who proved this? So this theorem that you can just take the samples, regularly spaced samples of digital or video, and throw away the rest of the continuous signal, it, it, it's the foundation of the modern media world. What you and I are doing right now is based on it. Who proved this first? Well, in America, we're all taught, I was taught, that the great scientist Claude Shannon proved the sampling theorem first in 48. So when I got ready to write this book, I went out to do my research about Claude Shannon and what it was, you know, the, the events surrounding his proof of the theorem this founding theorem, the sampling theorem, only to discover that Claude Shannon didn't do it. He never even claimed he did it. And I, then I stumbled on a whole cottage industry of claimants for the sampling mm -hmm. theorem. Almost every country has a claimant for it. Mm -hmm. um, so I sorted through all of these characters and I finally came up with the guy I think did it. And I have a strong argument for this in the book. And it's a surprise, a total surprise to me. His name is Vladimir Kotelnikov. He's a Russian communist. Um, so I think the reason in America, we don't know about him is because he was a commie, right? You can't mm. give credit to that guy. Mm. And, and by the way, he proved this theorem in 1933. So 15 years before Shannon even claimed to have done it or, or people claimed that Shannon did it. I don't read Russian, but I can read the mathematics and it's exactly the same mathematics that I use today, including all the nuance. So I started figuring out who is this character? This, who's he? He's foundational to the modern world. Who is he? Well, it's, I had to learn Soviet history, which I had never had a real reason to understand before, only to discover that this guy had lived through the whole Soviet nightmare. He was born before the revolution, lived through the revolution, both world wars, the civil wars, 
and the Cold War. And uh, he was a master scientist in the Soviet Union, the head of all the cryptography and the space, a major player in the space Soviet space race. The last picture we have of him, uh, last photograph I have of him, I got from Vladimir Putin's website because he's standing, Kotelnikov is standing in the Kremlin next to Putin. Kotelnikov is adorned with all the merit badges of the Soviet Union, the orders of Stalin, the orders of Lenin, the red this, the red that. And he's being knighted or whatever. The, there's no knighthood in Russia, mm. but some equivalent term, mm. some very high, high honor. Uh, only four people had had ever gotten this honor in this. So this and this was done on the 70th anniversary of Kotelnikov's proof of the theorem I've been talking about. So the Russians recognize this. Mm. Uh, so I, I, I said, well, I think this guy did it. Let's tell the world. I mean, the fact that he was a, a Soviet communist shouldn't. What's that got to do with anything? Uh, it makes for a great background story, doesn't it? His last job was for eight years, he was chairman of the Supreme Soviet of Russia. We can't say that about many American scientists that they have a title like that. Mm -hmm. Also, he came to America once, Kotelnikov did, and told us that Russia was going to put up a satellite. He told us about Sputnik before they put it up, two months before they put it up, but nobody believed him. Mm -hmm. And uh, let's see what else. Oh, he was, should have been thrown into uh, the gulag because most head chief scientists in Russia during the Soviet years were thrown into the gulag so that any of their intellectual property belonged to Russia only. Our guy, Vladimir Kotelnikov, didn't have to go into the gulag because he had a protectress. Her name was Valeria Golatsova, and she, the reason she could keep Kotelnikov out of the prison was because her family were close with Lenin's family, and she was married to Georgi Malenkov. Now, Malenkov was the guy just as bloody as Stalin who took over from Stalin when Stalin died as the next premier of the Soviet Union. You know, I'm sitting here reading this story, kind of mind blown. This is the guy that brought us the pixel. What a story. It's, what's incredible is that we didn't know it. I mean, uh, there's a lot of history in this book that I didn't know, and I probably wouldn't be expected to know. But what's amazing is, like I said earlier on, is that you unearth these stories. And I just, one of my questions actually was, how long did you expect the book to take? Because I know it took 10 years. When you first embarked on it, how long did you think it would take? Not 10 years. I, I guess <laughs> I didn't really understand how, three yeah. maybe, you know, yeah. What, what, yeah. what do all authors think? Yeah. Uh, and it was only when I, you know, I started realizing that every history that I thought was well understood turned out mm. to be back of lies, basically. It was just it, the, the received version of technical histories were just all bogus. I was, I was kind of astonished. And that's one of the themes of my book, by the way, is there is no simple narrative approach to the histories of high technology. And mm. if you find a simple narrative, you know, featuring a single creative genius who did it all, raise the red flag because it can't be true. It's it's uh, the very word high and high technology means otherwise. Mm. And I think it's a dangerous narrative that we always have, especially when it comes to, I'm a big advocate for women in tech. And I think the fact that you've talked about a couple of stories there and women that played pivotal parts, you know, the, a lot of stories about women for various reasons were kept from us. And the fact that these stories are now being unearthed and it takes someone like you, who quite frankly, it's not your job. You're not an investigative journalist who's seeking to right the wrongs in history. You're literally looking into something and saying, this doesn't sound quite right. Let me just go check. And I think there's not enough of that these days that people, you know, I, I know of journalists that will take verbatim a story from one publisher and then just publish it themselves as though it's gospel. And half the time it's not. And that narrative about the single genius, whilst we have Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos and people like that, really that the truth is there is a whole load of people behind them that are mm -hmm. enabling them to do what they do. Anyway, talking about that, going back, we so we've talked about Fourier, we talked about Kotelnikov, Alan Turing. What did you learn so, about him? So Al so Alan Turing is my one example in the book of somebody who actually is a lone genius from which mm. everything descended computationally, although nothing descended in a straight line from him. He was the guy that invented computation and the computer in 1936. He just, he did it. It's one of the great 
intellectual achievements of all times. There were predecessor, you know, predecessor thinkers like Leibniz and Babbage and Ava Lovelace and so forth who, who had at the idea, but they didn't get it. It was Turing who nailed it down completely and from which we inherited the entire world of computation and computers. The surprise to me was, was that people think that engineers invented the stored program computer. And that's what I mean by computer, by the way. It has to be a stored program computer. Uh, otherwise, it's what's the point? Mm-hmm. It's the stored program computer that Alan Turing invented. And I stepped through his proof. It's probably the most difficult part of my book for a reader just to show you that here it is in his original 1936 paper. Here it is. The stored program uh, computer is defined, and he proves all the properties of the computer that we now know are fundamental to that world. He and von Neumann, John von Neumann, were two of the early geniuses who knew exactly what Alan Turing had accomplished, but they also knew what he had accomplished was too slow. It was a mathematical idea. It was a software machine, basically. It was too slow. Computation was a great idea, but to be useful, it had to go fast. And to go fast meant these stored program computers, these computers had to be built in hardware. And they both set off immediately in the 40s to start building hardware computers. Alan Turing, it's one of the failures of his life. He, his machine got bogged down in bureaucracy. It was called Pilot Ace. It got bogged down in bureaucracy and probably suffered from Alan Turing's own personality a bit. Uh, but anyhow, instead of having the first machine, which would logically have been Alan Turing's, uh, the first machine turned out to be Baby in, at the University of Manchester. The shock to me was to find out that the first pixels, so I, I don't what well, I actually close the loop, but the sample of pictures is called the pixel. That's what we, the sampling theorem says you can sample a, a continuous picture and throw away what's between the samples. And we name those, what we call those samples is pixel, but they're pixels. So what surprised me, this is where I connect computation and sampling theorem is to discover that the very first computer, which was named Baby, believe it or not, had pixels and it could animate. So I was born in 43. I was born before computers. I've seen the entire thing unwind. I didn't have a clue. I couldn't have told, when I started writing this book, I couldn't tell you who built the first computer. And it finally dawned on me that was kind of ridiculous. The facts had to be out there. Why is this such a hard thing to do? Well, I think it's just a matter of definition. Once you define your terms, it's pretty easy to pick off. There's number one, there's number two, there's number three, and so forth. So that's what I did. I think it's fascinating. I think the reason that it obviously took such a long time is because you did a deep dive into a lot of these things. And it is fascinating to read. It is a massive book. I should warn people. It is a massive book and it will take you a while to get through it, but it is well worth it. And I think it's a tome. It's like your legacy plus the legacy of many others all in one place. So I assume and I hope and pray that this will end up in universities and other educational centers all over the world, because it really is something that I haven't seen before or read before. Well, that, um, that's what I hope too, Danielle, that, it's, that it's, a, it's a fundamental contribution. Yes, it's about, you know, I think people presume it's about Pixar. Well, yeah, mm. it's got Pixar in there, but that's not the point of the book. Mm. And it's about computer graphics, but that's not the point of the book. It's the point of the book is this huge idea of digital light every picture made of pixels, which is all pictures in the world almost now. It's almost people, if they don't understand, which you've said is one of the reasons for doing the book was to clarify what a pixel actually is. If people don't understand even the concept, you know, they might not think it's for them. And so I think that's one thing about the messaging of this book and why I wanted to talk to you about it is to get it over to people that actually it's much bigger than you think. It's not just about Pixar. It's not just about pixels. It's so much more. But it's one of those things when you come up with, for, you know, with a title for a book, it is almost impossible to say exactly what the book is about. And you just need people to kind of have faith that this is something that they will find interesting. And I think by doing these interviews and telling people more and more about what it's about, it's going to pique their interest. So I'm glad that we've got this time together. A lot of credit in the book you give to the people in history. So I wanted to ask you, I know in terms of computer graphics, you're up there as a pioneer. Can you give me a kind of just a 
overview of some of the other pioneers, like you mentioned Stephen Coons and Ivan Sutherland. Can you give me a brief history so people understand more about computer graphics? There's so many people involved, I end up doing family trees. I have maybe four or five flowcharts, I call them in the book, where I show all the people and sort of the time order of the people and who worked with whom and what machines they worked on and who stabbed who in the back, by the way, a lot mm-hmm. of those stories, mm-hmm. uh, to show you how these different threads pass through time, several decades, and uh, interbraided in different ways to end up with where we are today. Uh, you know, it's not a simple, ner- in fact, I call it a genealogical approach because it's definitely not simple narrative. And, you, and it's also a way of presenting all the people involved. Again, I had I've lived through the entire history of computer graphics, but I couldn't tell you how some of some of the famous names fit in. Uh, two famous names you just mentioned: one, Coons and Bézier, are two of the earliest people in the field. But I could not tell you until I wrote this book how they figured in. And I finally discovered the problem was that they didn't make pictures. They were so early that they didn't have machines that made pictures. They made objects. They made airplanes and cars. Uh, Moons worked on airplanes, and Bézier worked on uh, Renault automobiles in France. So their display, if you so to speak, were actual body parts of actual machines. And only later was that work inherited by the the CAD, the computer aided design world, and the computer graphics world. And so we honor them with. You know, the Coons Award is the highest award you can get in computer graphics, named for this this guy who really didn't make pictures early on. Mm. So, but now I know how he fits in and when he fit in. And, you know, that, and I hope with these roadmaps that uh, everybody can understand how they all fit together. Yeah, it's great that you did that. And also the other thing that I thought was really good is I've looked at your site and you're very interested in kind of family trees and history and how people fit together. So I think, you know, all of this comes together to explain, like we said, the foundation of what was to come. And you've mentioned previously about the whole revolution of computing and uh, computer graphics. You were there for all of it. So when did you get really excited? What was, I know in 1965, I think, was the year that you created your first computer graphic. What was the moment that you were like, this is the future? Well, it wasn't in 1965, believe it or not, even though I made my first computer graphic, that was just a chore. I used the computer to draw an equiangular spiral of many turns. It was a an antenna design for the Nimbus weather satellite. It was just a job. It didn't it just seem nothing special is what I'm trying to say. And then I got my first job. I got my PhD at Stanford. And my first job was in a computer science department at NYU, New York University in New York City, working for a man named Herb Freeman. Well, it turns out Herb Freeman was one of the earliest guys in computer graphics. I hope to raise his stature with this book because he's kind of left out. He was doing computer graphics when there were no... He knew I was an artist, and I think he thought that because I like to make pictures and I knew computation theory that perhaps I was a natural to do research in computer graphics. And he kept kind of trying to seduce me over into that world at NYU. And I finally, one day I said, Herb, if you ever get color, then I'm there. Because this is the old black and white days. And I just, I didn't care about black and white. And sure enough, a few years later, my friend Dick Schaup built a program called SuperPaint at Xerox Palo Alto Research Center and invited me in to paint pictures on his new creation. And there they were. There were color pixels. As soon as I saw those color pixels, a paint program, yep, that's me. That's that's everything that is special about me is computers and painting and color. And and from then on, that, that's, the mo- that's the moment you were asking for. I went, oh, this is, this is it. And that's the wave I, you know, essentially uh, rode out to Pixar and beyond. But you recognized the potential, which a lot of people didn't. Going on, I don't know actually at what point this happened. I think it was, I've got a feeling it was 1972, but I've heard you talk before about a pivotal moment in your life, which was a skiing accident. And I wondered if you could just talk us through why that was pivotal for you. Okay. So I had this job, my first job at NYU, and I went skiing. And basically during this time, I was proving theorems about cellular automata theory. It wasn't in computer graphics. And it wasn't AI any longer. It was this esoteric branch of computer theory. 
And I had just dropped my art, except for one thing. I got a cover for Scientific American magazine about cellular automata. And that was a picture. So that's one counterexample that I did. I was still doing a little bit of art, but I really wasn't exercising that part of my skill set at all. I went skiing in New Hampshire and broke my leg, broke my right femur. It was a nasty break. And it took, I was in a full body cast for three months, nipples to toes. I, I was just this stiff. I, I found out who my real friends were because I couldn't do anything. I, had, I was completely helpless. And it was my true New York City friends who stepped forward and took care of me. The consequence for me was I just had three months of free mental space. And I rethought the universe and came to the conclusion, just inexorably came to the conclusion that I was making a mistake in life. That I was, yes, I was advancing through uh, professorship levels and getting papers published and so forth. I was on the way up that way, but it wasn't, I wasn't doing my art. So I resolved that while still in the cast, that when I recovered my use of my legs, I would drop out of academia and go to California where something good would happen. It was that loose, Danielle. I was... I really didn't have a plan. I just knew I had to get away from what I was doing and go out to California, which is sort of my natural place, and something good would happen. And it did. What happened was my friend Dick Schaup had built this color paint program that I just told you about, and he called me over to see it. And as soon as I saw it, I went, oh, that's, that's why I came to California. There it is. That's definitely a pivotal moment. And I think the fact that you had that time off, most of us coast through life and coast through our careers. And it's only when you have that enforced rest. I've heard you talk about the fact that you were even dropping acid, I think, to just try and make the days, you know, shorter. And they weren't. They were just very long. They were long. It got longer and longer and longer. They were (laughs) wonderful days. People thought I was miserable, but I wasn't. It was one of the most fascinating parts of my life. I discovered how much mental space there is available if you don't have to move your body around it's just fast hours and hours and hours and friends and yes dope and all kinds of interesting stuff i painted pictures on the walls next to my bed you know the days were endless and i and i had plenty of time to think it all out Mm. um not that i came up with a good plan but i at least had a good impulse sometimes no plan is a good plan because it led you i guess it was yeah so then you get to California. At what point did you meet Ed Catmull and John Lasseter? When, when did you meet the people that became part of your family for the next few decades? Well, they both Ed and John came quite a bit late in the game. I was at Xerox Park for a while. And I got fired because the, the Xerox Corporation decided not to do color. Uh, you know, here I was. I was in heaven. There was, I thought at the time these were the first color pixels. Since writing the book, I know they weren't, but I, at the time, I thought they were the first color pixels in the world, and I had them, and I was using them. And this was the future. Xerox pulled the rug out and said, no, we have made a corporate decision to go black and white. So the next thing I did was I went with my good artist buddy, David Francisco to the University of Utah because I had heard that the next color memory was being built, color pixel memory was being built in Salt Lake City. Well... They took a look at us with two hairy guys, very uh, artistically oriented. They were defense department oriented, and they said, we can't deal with you guys. But there was this rich man from Long Island near New York City who bought one of everything in sight. And I said, including the, the pixel memory? And he, they said, yes. So David and I got ourselves to Long Island as fast as we could. And uh, that that was then basically met Alexander Schur, who was our first first of three rich patrons who paid our way and uh, a person who was already there was Ed Catmull so that's when I met Ed Catmull and that was the first iteration in some ways of Pixar wasn't it yeah and it, it importantly it was associated with an animated movie Uncle Alex we call him Alexander Schur <laughs> had a complete 100 person old-fashioned cell animation studio on his campus, the campus being for the New York Institute of Technology. It was old-fashioned. It was cell animation where you take, uh, you draw with pencil on paper, you uh, ink, you transfer, you trace the, the drawings with India ink onto clear celluloid, and then you fill in between the lines with opaque paints. 
and take a picture. That's that's the old fashioned way that Disney made the early movies, his early movies. Dr. Sure's notion was if he bought these computers, it would make the production of the movie he was making, which was called Tubby the Tuba, by the way, more efficient. He could make more money, in other words. So we learned we were, you know, we were doing hardware and software in the service of cell animations. What this meant was that we were learning how to do a completely, you know, a complete theater length animated movie the old fashioned way, but bringing computers to bear on the problem. And that's when we got the notion that, gee, why don't, why don't we be the first group in the world to make a completely digital movie? That's when we had our vision. So roughly 75, 1975, not understanding it would take 20 years to get there. And so we started inventing the algorithms one by one that we would use later to, you know, basically make Pixar, but we didn't know that yet. We were just advancing as fast as we could with what we had at the time. Danielle, I have to remind everybody that about Moore's Law. Moore's Law says that the way I say it is everything good about computers gets 10 times better every five years. This is the supernova that has driven the entire modern world. I can tell you, so in 1965, when I made my first computer graphic, the Moore's Law factor, which is related to density of transistors on an integrated circuit chip, completely unintuitive idea, the Moore's Law factor in 1965 was one. Today, it's roughly 100 billion. So computers, everything good about computers today is 100 billion times better than it was in 65. It's hard. These exponentials are hard for us human beings to to understand. Mm. But it's really important that you understand that throughout the history that I cover in my book, Moore's Law is going from 1 to 10 to 100 to 1,000 up to today, 100 billion, and it'll hit 1 trillion by 2025. Mm. That powerhouse. We have to pay homage to it because it's the driving force behind everything I'm talking about in the whole modern modern world as we understand it. The reason I bring it up now is because we didn't have very much Moore's Law power at New York Tech. It was uh, machines were slow and you know terribly slow, actually. But we were willing to put up with it because we knew about Moore's Law and that sooner or later, this is all going to get faster and better and by factors of 10, not just a little bit better, but hugely better. This is the vision, right? Because there are lots of people that couldn't see it happen. And I'm sure Uncle Alex, as you refer to him, you know, he was putting a fair amount of money in. uh, And there are people even today that will find it hard to put money into something that they can't conceive of happening in their lifetime. And it's only those that have the vision and not not all, (laughs) a lot of the time, visions aren't necessarily accomplished, partly because of money and and the lack of... Most of them aren't, I think, yeah. Yeah, but I think your story is one that, and the fact that you bring up Moore's Law, is for those that have the vision and for those that are able to get people behind them. And that's why storytelling is just so important in business, because once you can get people behind you and you can get the funding that you need and the right team, I mean, anything is possible, as you've proved... So you so you're working with it's the New York um, Institute of Technology. At what point did you move out of there? Because I think it you went to Lucas straight after, didn't you? Yeah. Well, so Uncle Alex, <laughs> by the way, he really was the uncle of my California roommate, which is one of oh. the greatest coincidences. He was like <laughs> yeah. one of the most astonishing coincidences of all times that the person I just happened to be sharing a house with in California just happened to be the nephew of, of the man who would turn out to be uh, one of my three patrons in life. Yeah. That ha- Really? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yes. Mm-hmm. So we call him Uncle Alex. Um, Uncle Alex turned out, when we finally saw the premiere of Tubby the Tuba, we realized he didn't have it. He wanted to be the next Walt Disney, but he didn't have the skills. There were so many flaws in Tubby the Tuba that we just, <laughs> some of us went to sleep rather than watch it. The premiere, it just was painful to watch. D- lint on the frames, shadows under the inked lines. So just anything that could be wrong was wrong. Mm. So when George Lucas called, not himself, but his people called and said, you know, George is interested in digitizing the movie making process. We we uh, leapt. Some of us did. Ed and I and David DeFrancisco leapt out to Marin County, which is just across the Golden Gate Bridge from San Francisco, to join George 
and uh, thinking that he wanted us to be in his movies. Uh, <laughs> we had that wrong, it turns out. He wanted us to build hardware and software for him, but he didn't see us as contributors to the content of his movies. Luckily, I didn't, I didn't understand that, so I was hiring the best computer graphics people in the world, thinking there would be this team that I could uh, show George when he came and asked for, for content. He, didn't, he never came and asked. And all of a sudden, I thought, oh, no, George Lucas doesn't understand what, a, what he's got here. He has the right idea. His vision was about digitizing movie making was a great was a great concept, but he didn't understand that, that extended to content as well as uh, you know production. So, rather famously in computer graphics, we got the big break from a non Lucasfilm movie, Star Trek II: The Wrath of Khan, uh, and the group now known as Pixar got its first outing on the big screen in a piece called the Genesis demo that we did for the Star Trek movie, not Star Wars movie. George saw that and he got he he got the picture and had us in his next movie. That was 82-ish. 80, it was 82. It was 1982 when we did Star Trek. We did the Genesis demo in Star Trek 2. In 1983, so every year there's this big conference called SIGGRAPH yeah. that we, you know, we always went to. It's where you get to show off to your colleagues in computer graphics about what you've accomplished in the past year. So I remember that Ed and I were flying back from the 1983 SIGGRAPH when we decided that at the 1984 SIGGRAPH, one year hence, we would announce to the world that we did character animation, not special effects, but characters, which is what Ed and I both loved. So I started on that airplane sketching out the storyboard of what would become a piece called Andre and Wallaby, the adventures of Andre and Wallaby, thinking that I was going to be the animator. Uh, That was a very naive thought of mine. I didn't understand that the skill that animators have and that I did not have. I can make things move, but I could not convince you that they were alive and conscious and feeling pain and conniving and all those things that animators can do. Luckily, that's when Ed and I hired John Lasseter, and he basically saved my bacon (laughs) by animating Andre and Wallaby. That's how he got into the picture. So what's interesting is your naivety is actually what, I mean, you say it served you badly there, but I think it serves you well because you always had these ideas that things could be done and not all the time they could be. When did Steve Jobs come onto the scene? Very late, actually. So George and Marsha Lucas. George, I told you about Uncle Alex as our first patron. Our second patron was George Lucas because he basically supported this for several years at Lucasfilm. But George and Marcia, his wife, got divorced in about 83, I think. And in California, the community property law says each spouse gets 50%. It's really clear. So basically overnight, George Lucas lost half his fortune. Mm. I went to Ed and said, you know, Ed, George never really understood who we were. You know, we wanted to be content providers. Uh, he's just lost half his fortune and, uh, he, he's going to fire us. And then I said, then I used the word sin. I said, it would be a sin if our world-class group of, of computer graphics talent dispersed. Now this is two nerds talking to one another, right? I said, why don't we start a company to give these guys a home or we're going to lose them? And Ed agreed, and we went, we went to a bookstore and bought How to Start Company books. I bought two. He bought two. I mean, we really didn't know what we were doing. Uh, the amazing thing is that it, it worked, didn't it? But it, it was hard to do. We had to finance. So we, we decided that we knew with, with hard data that we could not yet, because of Moore's Law, we could not yet make a movie. We needed five more years at least. So we could not, our new company could not be a movie company. And it could not be a special effects house because that didn't bring in enough revenue to support 40 people, which is what we had. And it could not. So the only thing, it couldn't be a software house for the same argument. The only thing that it could be, and Ed and I got here really fast, was got to this conclusion very fast, very rapidly, was that it was, we should be a hardware company. We had built this prototype 
computer called the Pixar image computer for George Lucas. So this, we, let's say, we just said to each other, why don't we just do the standard Silicon Valley thing? We take our prototype and we harden it into a product. And that product is what we support the company with. So that's what Pixar originally was for the first five years of its existence. It was a hardware company. And the hardware was a beautiful piece of hardware, but basically we weren't a very good hardware company. Anyhow, we had to get this company supported. We had to have it get it financed. We had the business plan. Next step is financing. Well, we went through 45 funding opportunities, and which all said no. So 35 venture capital firms said no. And eight large corporations said no. And two who said yes were General Motors and Phillips of the Netherlands, who decided to jointly support us. And we almost closed the deal with General Motors and Phillips. By almost, I mean, we got all the way to the final day of negotiations. Everybody saying yes at the end. Everybody's shaking hands. In the business world, this is a done deal. The only thing missing is that the attorneys present have to write it all down and get the signatures. That's the only thing missing. It's done. But not in this case. In this case, we were dealing with H. Ross Perot. I don't know whether you remember this character. He eventually, ran for, he eventually ran for president of the United States. He was a real character. He had brought, his company had been bought and folded into General Motors. And that was the branch of General Motors we were dealing with. H. Ross Perot. About the same time we thought we were closing the deal with General Motors and Phillips, Perot was uptown Manhattan at the General Motors building, insulting the board of directors there. That story broke overnight in the Wall Street Journal, and it became instantly known that anything that had to do with H. Ross Perot and General Motors was dead. And our deal was right there in that crack. So we got, so Ed and I are frantic, right? We're just absolutely Mm -hmm. frantic. We've gone through 45 funding. Everybody's saying no. This was the best shot of all, and it failed. And so on the in the in the limousine going to the airport from this failed General Motors Phillips negotiation, we decided on a Hail Mary, American football term probably. But anyhow, our idea was to uh, call Steve Jobs. Now, Steve had been in the picture slightly earlier. He had been kicked out of Apple, and he had called Ed and me and our financial guy down to his mansion near uh, Woodside, California, down near Palo Alto. And I remember sitting on the grass when Steve proposed to us that he buy us from George Lucas and run us as his next company. And we went, no, we don't want that. We want to run our own company, but we'll take your money. And he agreed to that. But Lucasfilm had to sign off on all such deals because they would get a piece of it. So Lucasfilm basically left, you know, not actually left him out of their offices, but in effect did because Steve offered about half of what General Motors and Phillips were offering. And that seemed like it was a deal that was going to come to fruition. All right. But it didn't. It failed. Ed and I are in the limo heading for the airport, Manhattan, when we said, let's just call Steve and have him make exactly the same deal to Lucasfilm, half the valuation of uh, General Motors Phillips. We think Lucasfilm is at the end of their tether and they'll go for it because there's just nothing else about to happen. And that's how we got, and it worked. That's exactly what Steve did. And that's how we got Steve Jobs as our investor. He did not buy us as many people think he did. He did not. He capitalized us. And he owned the majority of the company, and we employees owned the rest of it. That's how he got in the picture. Ed and I, and he were the board, but Ed and I were the management who ran the company. Uh, Steve was the money, in other words. Thank you for clarifying, because I do know, I mean, it was something you talk about in the book, but I think Steve Jobs is somebody that like to present himself in a certain way and obviously yes yeah he was noted in various parts as a co-founder and I understand that when it was known that Toy Story was most likely going to be a success which obviously it went on to be huge he, he knew how to position himself so it looked like he'd been there from the start which is interesting I know you didn't get on with him but I know that you obviously got on with Ed and John 
And I just oh, yeah. wondered, they're fantastic characters in a, in a time that we all look back and we look at what you've achieved with Pixar, all of you. And I just wanted to know, what were some of the lessons, maybe one lesson from each of them that you've kept with you all this time? Well, I, I hate to sort out just one or two people. That's why I have a family tree in the book of all the geniuses, I call them, that, that gathered around Ed and me and John to form the group that became Pixar without, it took them all. You can't, you just can't look at the leadership and say that it's because of the leader. It was because of this team of geniuses. And I mean, artistic geniuses and technical geniuses. Just a story that I think illustrates Ed's leadership capabilities was he, we needed to solve this problem of motion blur, it's called. If you do, you know, animation is just a sequence of 24 frames per second. It's a sample. We're back to the sampling theorem again. Frames in a movie are samples in time. And if you don't do the right thing, if you don't sample correctly, you get what's called judder. You get this very unpleasant juddering of a character across the frame. We knew we had to solve that problem or we would never make it in the big time. Ed worked on it really hard for a bunch of years, kind of alone. And then when we got to Lucasfilm and Pixar, he started a contest about motion blur. And I think he assumed he was going to win it because he's the only one working on the problem. But he didn't. Three of our geniuses came together and solved the problem in a spectacular way. And that's a, a really pretty piece of leadership. Oh, he, he, established, he, he set it up so that there was a reason to, to solve this problem. You know, glory amongst the group, I guess, is the, is the reward. And then he, he lost to somebody who did a better job. But he didn't lose, did he? Because we solved the problem for Pixar, and we were the first to have motion blur, and that, that paved the way to the future for us. Thank you for sharing that. And you're right to point out as something we did discuss earlier about the fact that there's many people involved in any success. A couple more things I wanted to just speak to you about. And one of them is my absolute favorite quote of the book. When you talk about conditions for progress, you say an idea, chaos and a tyrant. The conditions for the progress of a new technology appear to be an excellent idea, a disruptive chaos that demands and drives the idea's development and a tyrant or tyranny that often unknowingly protects the creators while they advance the idea. And obviously you've given examples of Fourier, Koltonikov and Alan Turing. And I wanted to know, well, who or what was the tyrant in the Pixar story? Oh, that's easy. It's Steve Jobs, of course. <laughs> Even though he and I did not like each other at all, he tried to cut out my, my credit as co-founder of Pixar and replace it with his name. You know, I have all sorts of reasons to despise the guy. When it gets down to bottom line, however, what does Steve Jobs do? Well, he paid our way when nobody else would. I told you about 45 people turned us down. Steve stepped forward and for all the wrong reasons, I might add, kept paying for us during the five, first five years of our existence when, when we well, I guess I can give more detail there. We, we, we should have failed. If we had been an ordinary Silicon Valley company, hardware company, we would have failed two, three, four times, meaning we just ran out of money, couldn't pay the employees and couldn't keep our doors open. Steve Jobs, however, presumably because he couldn't withstand the embarrassment of his second thing being a failure, would, would tear Ed and me apart, but he would always write another check and take equity away from us, of course. Mm. until he had invested basically half of his Apple fortune in, in Pixar. So Steve, for reasons, I think to protect himself from the embarrassment of failure, would write us a check until he was really in deep. And basically, we were still failing at the end of five years. So what happened was at the end of five years, Moore's Law had done its thing. It was now everything was 10 times better. And sure enough, right on cue, Disney knocked on our door and says, let's make that movie you guys always wanted to make. We'll pay for it. So Disney basically saved a day financially, saved Steve Jobs from embarrassment. And Steve, his business brilliance shown right there because he took the fact that the critics told us that Toy Story is going to be a success. He took that as enough to take Pixar public. We had no money in the bank. We had nothing, but we had this Toy Story in the can, so to speak. And he took that to a public offering and became a billionaire overnight. 
That was a brilliant move. Now, nowhere in this was he part of the movies. The, the movies were not his vision. He was a hardware guy. He could not save a hardware company, despite being a hardware guy. Basically, we kept him out of the building because he disrupted things too much. We always had our meetings an hour and a half away. There were a lot of things about this guy that didn't work. But bottom line, for whatever reasons, he kept us alive during those five years. So got to give him credit for that. What, Like I say, you need a tyrant sometimes, but the tyrant often doesn't know what he's doing. That's good. Talking of Steve Jobs, obviously it did work out quite well. But moreover, he saw or heard that Toy Story was going to be the hit that it, well, it became more of a hit than you anticipated. What did it feel like when it was made and it was out and people were watching it? Oh, it's fabulous. <laughs> of course. You know, what I try to tell people is we didn't know we were going to be Pixar, right? We just, a bunch of, a bunch of people trying to make the first movie. And the fact that it was a wonderful movie, I mean, that's just a cherry on the top. I'm extremely proud of Pixar, everything it's done since. That I was part of it, I can't be happier. I look a lot at your site and I've read quite a few of your papers and memos and I, I find it really interesting that you've put everything up there. And I wanted to know, out of everything you've done, and there's been a lot, what are you most proud of? Oh, well, Pixar, just that's a big, fat, global answer. I'm very proud of Pixar. Um, there is another lesser known thing that I'm proud of. It's called Sunstone. It's a piece I did in 1979 at New York Institute of Technology on the still crude computers of the time with an artistic mentor named Ed M. Schwiller. It's in the collection of the Museum of Modern Art, and I'm still maybe inordinately proud of this piece that we did in 79. But Pixar, I guess that swamps everything. It's just, it's a, it's a big, big, big glory. Of course. If you could go back to the young Alvy lying in the hospital bed with all that time on your hands and probably wondering what was going to happen next, what's one piece of advice you would offer him? Pay attention to Moore's Law. I mean, there's so many things that I look back and say, Moore's Law solved that problem. Why didn't we get it at the time that all we had to do was just sit still and that would get solved? We were off spinning unnecessarily wasting energy on something that was just going to happen anyhow. What I try to tell people is who didn't break their leg and don't have the freedom to move is if you can go where the action is. In a sense, that's what I did, wasn't it? I understood there was a problem and that something exciting was happening elsewhere. And I just made sure I got myself to that elsewhere. I can say that it's sort of glib to say, well, go where the action is. But most people have families. I didn't have a family at the time. And for a lot of reasons are nailed down to the spot and they can't move. But if you can move, First of all, be as good as you can at what you think you are good at, and then go where the action is. That's great advice. I'm going to finish with one of my other quotes that I like about your book. It's actually from George Dyson, and it says, any system simple enough to be understandable will not be complicated enough to behave intelligently, while any system complicated enough to behave intelligently will be too complicated to understand. And it was the third law of AI. And I just wanted to say that your book goes a long way in demystifying the origins of the pixel and the innovation which primed the landscape for computer graphics. I honestly believe I need to read it a couple more times over the however long I have, because I there's really, a lot there for there sure. There is, yeah. there is. And yeah. doing my research, you know, I looked at your site, I looked at the book, and I, it opened my eyes to a lot. So I just wanted to say I, thank you. I just wanted to add one thing. You, there are 300 additional pages called the annotations to the book. On my website, you know, I couldn't afford, it's already over 500 pages long. I just couldn't make it any longer, but I had a lot more to say. So there are 300 pages at alviray.com slash digital light that carry some of the more esoteric arguments that I couldn't fit into the book. Well, thank you for sharing it. Cause that's the other thing, right? That so many people are interested in what you're talking about and will want to dig even deeper and may have more time than I do. And I think it's fantastic that you put it up. So thank you again. And thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me today. My pleasure, Danielle. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening to today's episode. And if you enjoyed it, please don't forget to like, subscribe and share. It would mean the world to me and it helps others to find it too. And thanks so much to today's guest, Dr. Alvy Ray Smith. 
I'm so grateful that Alvi was able to give us a truly fascinating look back at his career journey as well as the history of the pixel and computer graphics. Alvi was a joy to speak to and if you get the chance to read his book A Biography of the Pixel I highly recommend it. It's both enlightening and a wonderful tribute to the history of computer graphics by the person who helped pioneer the field. But it's also a book with many lessons. Alvi draws on the rich history of music, of patterns, of maths, art and computing, as well as his own journey in order to impart wisdom for any budding entrepreneur, artist or engineer. He shows you how he did it and offers advice. As he said in this interview, I understood there was a problem and that something exciting was happening elsewhere. And I just made sure I got myself to that elsewhere. So whether you're looking to innovate, set up a business or make your mark in the world, Find out what it is you want to do. Find where you can have the biggest impact and where possible, go there.